In Africa, I've heard it told that sometimes it can be very difficult to uh, capture animals, and there's a demand for in the context of the zoos in the United States. I found that one of the most difficult animals to catch might kind of surprise you, but it's not difficult because of its ferocity or its size. It's difficult because of its cunningness and its swiftness. It's the ring-tailed monkey. The ring-tailed monkey is one of the most difficult animals to catch, if not the most difficult animal to catch. And one of the, I'm sure, challenging things about it is if you've seen the monkey at the zoo, it probably laughs at you and points at you when you don't catch it. But the Zulus have been catching the ringtail monkey for years, and they do it with ease, and they do it with a fairly simple technique. They take a melon, a melon, the seeds inside that the monkeys particularly love, and what they do is they cut a hole in the melon the size of the monkey's hand. And what the monkey does is the monkey inserts its hand into the melon, and then it grabs the seeds, and then it tries to pull its hand out, and it can't because its fist is bigger than the hole because it's holding on to the seeds. And as it holds on to the seeds, the Zulu sneaks up behind it and catches it, traps it, and sends it to the United States. Why? Because it won't let go of the seeds. It would be very simple for it to get away, but it won't let go of the seeds. It was snared, it was trapped because it wanted to hold on to that which ultimately cost him his freedom. The reality is that the Zulus are effective in catching the ringtail monkey because they know the animal. Because they know what the animal's priorities are and what the animal will do. We're going to talk this morning about fighting the fight. And I'm going to put that in the context of spiritual warfare because indeed that's what the context of this, this particular battle, all battles, but specifically the battle we're addressing this weekend. That's the context uh, in which we find ourselves fighting and, and the reality is that we have a uh, we have a rather cunning opponent we have a, a, a cunning opponent who, who knows us well now he's a defeated opponent and uh, we recognize that but he is an opponent nonetheless and 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 he's an opponent that to bring another sporting analogy to play he watches our game films Watching game films are important. See, I mean, as a defensive lineman, it's important to, to watch a game film. I would look for anything that that offensive lineman set up across from me would do. Any, anything, even the slightest thing that might give me an advantage. And so, for example, if that offensive lineman, after watching game films, you came to realize that on every pass play, he turned his right foot out. Guess what? I had a great advantage at that point in time because I knew whether it was going to be a pass or a rushing play. I knew it without fail. Why? Because every time he did that, he didn't even know he was doing it, but I knew he was doing it. And that's the level of intensity that Satan watches your game films about. He knows when you turn your foot out to the right. He knows when you're vulnerable and he takes advantage of it. Now, to be theologically correct, I don't know you, but I would have to venture to say that I don't think any of you are important enough to receive the direct attention of Satan himself. Satan is finite. He's not omnipresent. And so when I speak of Satan watching your game films, I'm not speaking that, uh, you know, it's Satan and his minions. It's, 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 it's the fact that that's where the strategy comes from. But the enemy and, and, and those who... Uh, serve him know us and they know us very well uh, one of the things I've been interested to note in the context of the war on terrorism is the fact that terrorists can be very patient that that 9-11 plot didn't develop in a matter of a couple of weeks or a couple of months it developed over a long period of time they were very patient to accomplish their goal and we need to recognize that the enemy is very patient to accomplish his goal with us as well. Uh, and, and, and so in the midst of that, we, we find ourselves dealing with these issues in the context of spiritual warfare. It, it wouldn't be called warfare if it was easy. 
And we find that we have many tools, in fact, we'll look specifically at them in a minute, that God provides for us in regards to this warfare that we wage, specifically in the context of sexual temptation, but also in the context of other temptations as well. I began thinking about the significance of of spiritual warfare and, and the application of that. We had a little discussion this morning at our table over breakfast about why culture is heading the way it is, and one of the answers was because of the family. And, and as I look at the idea of parenting in the context of family, I recognize that you know, we have a problem in regards to parenting. And, and one of the problems we have in regards to parenting, even in the church, is that you know, parenting's hard work, and, and it tends to narrow our focus down to the here and now. <clears throat> and obviously, with a, a large number of children in my family, the the, the parenting focus that we tend to have to deal with are logistics. How many cars do we have? We don't have new cars, so how many of the cars are running? How many drivers do we have? I mean, how do we get from point A to point B? How, those are the logistics of life. And, and for parents, that's a lot of times what we struggle with. We struggle with not the, the, the long look, but we struggle with the how do I get through today? And sometimes that, because, that can become because we're overwhelmed, and sometimes that's just because we've got to figure out how to, how to make it all work. And as I was thinking about that, I realized that one of the problems we have in the parenting task is that frequently we don't take that long look. And I think what happens is we wake up after 18 or 19 years, and we have kids, and we wonder, how did that happen? Who is that? Who is that boy? Who is that girl? Not that we don't know them, but as they get ready to move out, we think, wait a minute, do they have the values? Why? Because we haven't had that relationship time. And maybe because we haven't focused on the tasks of preparing them for what they're getting ready to face. One of the challenges in parenting uh, is the challenge in, in living life in general, and that is the fact that we teach whether we want to or not. I will sometimes look at one of my children and I will think to myself, where in the world did he learn to act like that? And the Holy Spirit says, well, you taught him. And I'll think, well, I didn't want to teach him that, but I have to realize that, yes, I taught them how to do that. I didn't sit down and say, A, B, C, this is what you do. No, I just showed them through my actions that, how do you do this? See, we teach whether we want to or not. And so my challenge is that when we teach, we need to make sure, and when we live life, we need to make sure we're living it under the grace of God in such a way so that what we teach is the good stuff. It's the stuff that God wants us to teach. And as I continued to think about this parenting, I began to think about the fact that maybe one of the things that's missing from the way we do parenting is as we don't take that long look, maybe we need to recover that long look. And in recovering that long look, maybe we need to look for what are we trying to do in the context of parenting? And I began thinking about this issue of spiritual warfare, and I began thinking about the, the biblical perspective of, uh, of, of warfare, of warriors, of soldiers in the New Testament, of the mighty men in the Old Testament. There's a significant aspect to that idea of, of warrior uh, in the context of Scripture. And I began thinking that, in essence, really what God has given us as parents is he's given us an extended time of boot camp for our children. We basically have about 18 years to prepare our kids for battle. And the problem is that most of the time we don't realize that that's what our task is because we're so busy in the day-to-day tasks of changing diapers at the young end or getting everybody where they need to go at the older end that we miss the big picture and the ultimate goal of what God has called us to do as parents, to prepare them for battle. And one of the problems in the midst of that, too, is that we tend to minimize the significance of the enemy. We, we tend to not take the enemy real seriously. In fact, many of us in parenting, our focus is, well, let's see how close you can get to the enemy and survive. Well, it's just an R-rated movie. It's not that big of a deal. How close can you get to the enemy and survive? And if we don't define to our children who that enemy is... And what his schemes are, and we don't teach them the weapons that God has provided to deal with that enemy, then we're going to have children who what? Who aren't going to be effective in battle. Who aren't going to be prepared for battle. And so out of that, I began developing a 
some teaching that, uh, Lord willing, in the next year or two will turn into a book that has to do with warfare parenting. Now, some of you are not parents. Well, that's okay, because the emphasis of what we're teaching and what I'm discovering in the midst of this uh, perspective applies to all of us, whether we're parenting in the context of training our youth and children for warfare, uh, or whether we're ourselves preparing for warfare, either as parents or non-parents, singles, it has application. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind, I'd say foundationally to what we're dealing with is that spiritual warfare is real. And, and I think too often we fall into, C.S. Lewis talks about two equally ineffective extremes in regards to spiritual warfare, the devil under every rock extreme or the devil doesn't exist extreme. And uh, for most Baptists, what we do is we believe in, we say we believe in spiritual warfare, but we act as if the devil doesn't exist. We, we minimize and we act as if it really doesn't happen. Why? Because we're afraid that if we were to in any way talk about or deal with spiritual warfare, we'd become charismatic and that would be terrible. But the reality is we can actually deal with what scripture teaches in regards to spiritual warfare without going down the charismatic pathway. But the reality is that spiritual warfare is real. There's a, both a battle within and a battle without. There's a battle inside us, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, because sexual sin starts with the temptation in the mind. So we're going to look at how we deal with that in a minute, biblically. But there's also a battle that uh, rages outside of us as well. Um, and, uh, you know, the enemy does attempt to, uh, to trip us up uh, in any way that he can. So what I want to challenge you to begin thinking about today uh, is that idea of taking warfare seriously from a perspective of training. And that training first dealing with training us. And then dealing with training those that we minister to. Again, in the context of parenting, training our children, in the context of ministering to others. If you're not a parent, or even if you are, how can we train them? How can we prepare people to take seriously the context, the battle in which we are indeed uh, living? We'll look at uh, Ephesians 6 in a minute. The, the picture I want to paint in your mind first, though, is the fact that Ephesians 6 tells us that God provides us the weapons that we need for this battle. And what I come against time and time again as I counsel and deal with people is Christians who have the tools, the weapons that they need. And not only are they not using the weapons, but they're laying down with the weapons next to them, tripping up the people who are in battle. That's the picture I think we have to deal with in the excuse me, contemporary church today is not only do we have people who aren't accessing the weapons that God's provided for them, but they're actually hindering those that are attempting to. And again, that picture is they're laying down with that which they need right next to them. And so part of the challenge, and we see this in the Ephesians passage, is that we need to utilize and, and, uh, and implement those weapons uh, in the context of, of the battle. But, you know, one of the things that uh, I would argue that we need to address, too, and one of the reasons I've been encouraged to be here with you this weekend is because the fact that we need to, in the context of that battle, take care of each other. As a being involved in the fire service, unfortunately, sometimes I have to tell people that the fire service is frequently a better church than the church is. Sometimes it's hard to go do evangelism with firefighters because of the fact that they get this idea of family and body and cooperation and working together a lot better than we do. It's hard to appeal to them and say, hey, you need to come and be a part of a body of, of people that support and love and, and all those things. When I recognize that what we do sometimes is the church pales in comparison to what they do in the context of their profession of, of, uh, of firefighting. The reality is that one of the uh, mottos or emphases of the, of the service and and uh, one of the Marines that was interviewed for an article that I read, he said, the thing we do extremely well is we take care of each other. And I would argue that sometimes one of the things the church does extremely poorly is taking care of each other. Either because we're afraid to ask the questions, we're afraid to be there and hear what people have to say, or we're not in relationship with them at all in the first place. 
And, and the effective way for us to be in the context of being prepared for and effective at battle is to take care of each other. In 2003, uh, Major General Mattis of the Marine Corps gave a speech. Um, and and I, I want you to just think a little bit about this in the context, not of what he was dealing with, but in the context of the subject matter of what we're addressing today. Because I would venture to say that most of us have not thought about dealing with sexual temptation and sin from a perspective similar to what Mattis says to his troops. I would say that we haven't thought about dealing with life from that perspective. But as I read this and thought about this, it had quite an impact. He said, for decades, Saddam Hussein has tortured, imprisoned, raped, and murdered the Iraqi people invaded neighboring countries without provocation and threatened the world with weapons of mass destruction. The time has come to end his reign of terror. On your young shoulders rests the hopes of mankind. When I give you the word, together we will cross the land of departure, close with those forces that choose to fight and destroy them. Our fight is not with the Iraqi people, nor is it with members of the Iraqi army who choose to surrender. While we will move swiftly and aggressively against those who resist, we will treat all others with decency, demonstrating chivalry and soldierly compassion for people who have endured a lifetime under Saddam's oppression. Chemical attack, treachery, and the use of innocent as human shields can be expected, as can other unethical tactics. Take it all in stride. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Never allow your unit to be caught with its guard down. Use good judgment and act in the best interests of our nation. You're part of the world's most feared and trusted force. Engage your brain before you engage your weapon. Share your courage with each other as we enter the uncertain terrain north of the line of departure. Keep faith in your comrades on your left and right and marine air overhead. Fight with a happy heart and a strong spirit. For the mission's sake, our country's sake, and the sake of the men who carried the division's colors in past battles, who fought for life and never lost their nerve, Carry out your mission and keep your honor clean. Demonstrate to the world there is no better friend, no worse enemy than a U.S. Marine. As I think about that, I think the enemy that we deal with is, is much more insidious than even a Saddam Hussein. Uh, he has uh, tortured, impacted, captured, and done more damage to people than Hussein has ever done or ever thought about. And yet we tend to not take the battle nearly as seriously as Mattis and his troops did in regards to the invasion of Iraq. Maybe that's where we need to start, or at least that's what I present to you as a challenge. Maybe what we need to do is begin to realize who our enemy is. Maybe we need to begin to realize that we are indeed in a fight for life and death. Maybe we need to realize that the way we fight this battle has an impact not just on our individual lives, but on the lives of every man in this room and the lives of our families and the lives uh, of our communities as well. <clears throat> Maybe as we begin to recognize that, we'll, we'll take this perspective of training and preparation a little differently. And as we begin to look at it a little differently, maybe we'll begin to be even more motivated to be effective in this battle and to realize that if the enemy can take each of us out individually through the temptation towards sexual thought or sexual impurity, it's obviously going to have an impact on the battle because we're not going to be effective as a fighting force if we're hindered from being able to do the work uh, of a soldier. As I thought about this, again, in the context of parenting, I thought, you know, so how are soldiers trained? Uh, well, soldiers are trained um, to do a number of things, and, and, and many of them seem pedantic and redundant and ridiculous and painful. And why are they trained that way? Well, they're trained that way because the focus of the training isn't the training itself. The focus of the training is the battle to come. And so soldiers are trained that when they are given an order, they're to obey the order. I've not been in the military, but I have been in the fire service. And in the midst of that, I see a lot of parallels there. There are many things in the context of that fire training that I might not have particularly wanted to do. I don't know about you, but I'm not a real fan of ladders. Uh, but nevertheless, I climbed ladders. Not only did I climb ladders and get on the roofs that I didn't feel particularly comfortable with, but there was this 
joy of going up a, a ladder on a stick or a truck. And not only did I not have a building to look into, but as you were going up, I mean, there was literally nothing under you. That's kind of a disconcerting experience. But and, and it sways. For those of you who haven't been on one of those things, it sways. It's not like it's a stable thing you're walking up, but it kind of sways in the wind. And, and so, but, but why did I do that? Because the ultimate goal was to be an effective firefighter. I did what I was uncomfortable with. I did which, that which was difficult for me. I did it because it was part of the, reaching the goal uh, of, of being able to be effective in that which I was called to do in regards to, the, to that uh, fire service. Sometimes it was tiring, stressful, repetitive. It was demanding. And certainly in the context of the military, those things are even more true. Sometimes it's demeaning, but it's for a greater good. Why are soldiers taught immediate obedience? Why are they taught respect? Because of the fact that there's going to come a point in time where in battle, if they're not immediately obedient, they or somebody else could lose their life. And so as I began thinking about that in the context of parenting and in the context of what we're dealing with here, I'm thinking maybe we need to adapt more of that men of valor, that warrior, that soldier perspective in regards to how we deal with life, how we deal with the training to accomplish that which God wants us to do. And if you're wondering about the significance of this in a parenting context, just think about the last time you were at a grocery store. Because I can almost guarantee you the last time you were at a grocery store, you saw a very common thing. And what you saw was an interaction between a parent and a child. And I don't know exactly what that interaction revolved around, and I don't know exactly what aisle it was on, but here's what it looked like. I want, give me, something to that effect, and the parent saying, no, you can't have it. And the child, of course, immediately saying, yes, ma'am, settling down and everything was fine. Okay, now, if you saw that, you've been to a different grocery store than I've been to. Um, but no, the, the child escalates and says, no, I want it, depending on the age of the child, and sometimes not even depending on the age of the child. I've seen some uh, very old children throw temper tantrums in grocery stores, but uh, uh, frequently based on the age of the child, it's either a, 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 a logical word argument or it's a temper tantrum or whatever, and, and, and it escalates and it continues, and I feel uncomfortable because I want to spank the child and I leave. I go to another aisle. I go to another aisle to avoid it. And, and even though I avoid it, here's what I often find out is that when I go to the checkout stand, guess what the child has? Right. The cookies or whatever it was they were arguing right there in the basket or even more likely in their hand. No, you can't have it. No, you can't have it. No, you can't have it. And somewhere between when I got uncomfortable with the 27 no's and checkout, what do they have? Just what they wanted. And, and, and guess what? That doesn't serve us well for life. I mean, it doesn't serve us well for those of you that have jobs. It doesn't serve you well just for the general workforce. But it certainly won't serve us well for the Christian life. And in case you haven't noticed, that interaction is not just limited to non-Christian parents and non-Christian children. It happens within our camp as well. Why is it important to teach children to obey their parents? Because if children can't obey their parents whom they can see, how can they ever obey God whom they can't see? And so I would present before you that as I developed this, I thought it's important for us in the context of parenting, and I would argue it's important for us in the context of fighting the fight in regards to sexual temptation to garner some things and emphasize some things that we see in the context of the training and preparation of soldiers. <clears throat> and I've uh, developed uh, five of those things that I think are important. And I just want to present them to you and cause you to think about that as a foundation for what we're going to move towards when we talk about spiritual warfare and we talk about thoughts and we talk about preparation the, the first one of those is the idea of honor. Uh, the idea of honor. Uh, again, in the context of parenting, it's, it's significant. We, we certainly see the emphasis in Ephesians 6 to honor father and mother. 
The root of the Hebrew word is heavier. The idea is to, to place weight or to give weight to something or something or someone. And, and so that idea of honoring is we're giving weight. We're giving precedence to, to someone else. And the reality is that all of us in the context of being soldiers for Christ, of being the warriors that God calls us to be, we need to be men of honor. We need to honor our wives. We need to honor our children. We need to honor those in spiritual authority over us. We need to honor those in the political arena. Why? Because they're good leaders? No, because God calls us to honor them. Because that's what God's desire is, and we see that clearly in Romans 13. Last year about this time, I had the opportunity to be in West Texas. Uh, I ended up being the incident commander for the Texas Line of Duty Death Task Force for the uh, memorial service for the 12 firefighters that were uh, killed in West in the explosion there. I came in on a Monday morning. I'd been there, uh, got there Thursday after the explosion on, uh, on uh, Wednesday. Uh, was there involved with the removal of the bodies from the hot zone and a number of other things Thursday night. In the process of planning this memorial service, we were going to do it at Baylor. And so Monday morning we went to Baylor to see the facilities and begin to plan this memorial service. And as I pulled into the parking lot and began to walk inside, one of my honor guard commanders came out and said, uh, we just found out that uh, the president's going to be here and the advance team will be here this afternoon to begin planning for the president to be here at the memorial service. Well, my Monday and my week was dramatically changed because all of a sudden things began to look a little different. And in the midst of things beginning to look a little different, I, I, I found out a number of things. One of the things I found is that uh, I struggle with fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. I, I like to be liked. I like to be praised. And I struggle with that in the midst of God kind of bringing some of those struggles to bear. Even last year, uh, I had the opportunity to say no to the White House five different times. So I thought, okay, I got this fear, I got this fear of man thing down. So I uh, got a little bit of a victory in the midst of that uh, as I advocated for our families and some of the things that needed to happen. Uh, in the midst of that memorial service. But um, some of you may know the significance of challenge coins. Many of you don't. But in the context of the military, a challenge coin has uh, two different functions. Within the function of a unit, the challenge coin is primarily given uh, to those who do a good job. It's, a, it's an attaboy kind of thing. Uh, and it's a unit-specific challenge coin. And so in the midst of that uh, challenge coin if the commanding officer nco whatever says you've done it you get this challenge coin and you're supposed to carry it all the time and uh, at any point in time uh, if uh, you're out uh, you can take your challenge coin out and you can tap it on the bar and everybody's supposed to produce their challenge coin if you haven't gotten one you don't get to play the game but if you've gotten one and you don't have it you have to buy drinks for everybody so that's one part of the morale of challenge coins for unit specific challenge coins the other challenge coins are based, rank-based challenge coins. And the rank-based challenge coins means that as you interact with somebody who has rank within the context of the military, they have their challenge coin. And if you collect that challenge coin, the other way that uh, challenge coins can be used, same context, I can pull out a challenge coin, wrap it on the bar, and you pull out your challenge coin. And if my, cha if my rank outranks your rank, then you have to buy me a drink. And so that's the perspective of challenge coins in regards to rank. Well, I had the opportunity in the midst of uh, this uh, uh, memorial service to spend some time with President Obama, and I got a presidential challenge coin uh, from Obama. My uh, son, who works for Dallas Fire Department, gave me a hard time saying, I'll never let you forget that you have a challenge coin from Barack Obama. And I said, I'll never let you forget you have a challenge coin from no president. <laughs> he said, okay, you got me there. But the reality is that he said also, too bad you don't drink because you would never have to buy another drink the rest of your life. Because I have the challenge coin that trumps all challenge coins. But the reality is in the midst of that military environment and in the midst of preparing for battle, we need to realize that because we have a Christ in our hearts in the spiritual warfare context, we have the challenge coin that trumps all challenge coins. We have the opportunity to have an impact in people's lives 
not because I had an interaction with somebody once upon a time, but because of the fact that the one who has that ultimate challenge coin in the spiritual warfare component, he, he's with me. It's not just one he visits. It's not just we had a visit with him at one point in time, but he gives me the grace and he, he provides presence. His pride provides his presence in me. And in the midst of that, what he calls me to do is to give honor to whom honor is due. And it's not because we like them necessarily or agree with them, but we have to give honor. And so if we want to be effective, I would argue being good soldiers in the context of dealing with sexual sin and temptation, we need to recognize and train in regards to honor. Second is authority. We need to recognize and respect and submit to those who are in authority. And again, that goes back to the grocery store illustration. That's very important for us to teach in the context of of our families. It's very important for us to recognize, though, in the context of the other relationships we have. Well, so why is that important in the context of this issue with sexual temptation? Because if you don't listen again to the authorities and respond to the authorities whom you see and interact with day in and day out, it's going to be that much easier for you not to listen to and respond to the authority, the God of the universe, who has the control of your life when he says, don't do that. Don't go there. Well, I won't go very far. Or I won't stay very long. If we don't recognize and respond to and submit to the authorities God's given us in our life, we're not going to do it as if we're not, we, you can't pick and choose. Well, I'll accept this authority today and that authority tomorrow, or this authority and not that authority. We have to respond to God ordained authority. Obedience is the third thing <clears throat> when I think about training for warfare, the training of a soldier. Immediate, unquestioning obedience is taught to soldiers. And, uh, and, and we need to have that. We need to recognize that, uh, that when God calls us to do something, uh, we need to be obedient. And, and, and there's so many things that he calls us to in his word. Uh, as you read Psalm 119, what a, what a great example of a man who is passionately in love, not only with God, but his word. But that obedience is significant. And the reality is that sometimes we're going to have to continue to work on obedience. And I mentioned the two verses, I mean, two words in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. Uh, if, you want, if you want some, some, uh, some uh, practice at uh, training yourself for obedience, uh, put those two words front and center in your life for the next 10 or 15 years. Rejoice always. It doesn't say rejoice always except, but rejoice always. And in that context of obedience to God's word, we learn how to be obedient to those in authority as well. Discipline is the fourth thing. Uh, discipline, uh, the discipline and instruction of the Lord, having spiritual disciplines, being a disciplined man or woman becomes important as well. And that certainly has uh, direct uh, application uh, to what we're dealing with in this area, the discipline of knowing what you can and can't touch, look at, be involved with. That discipline is very important. We'll talk, when I wrap up here in a few minutes, we'll talk about practical ways that we can prepare ourselves for this battle. And part of it has to do with discipline. To make commitments before. Yeah, you know, The bottom line is the time to decide whether you're going to go out to lunch by yourself with a woman who's not your wife is not when the opportunity presents itself. That's not the time to do it. That's the time to be disciplined about the decision and a commitment that you've already made. It's not the time to try to figure out whether, hey, I guess this would be okay. So discipline is important. And then the final thing is courage. Courage. Because the bottom line is that if you're going to take a stand for God in the context of living a life in today's culture, it's going to take courage. There are going to be invitations that you're going to have to turn down. There are going to be places when you find out that you're going that you may have to call a cab to get a ride home from. It's going to take courage to take a stand against different people in your life who are taking you to places that maybe, who knows, fine for them. They may claim to be Christians. They may take offense. You're just holier than thou thinking you can't come to this place with me. And what do you have to do? You have to have the courage that says, no, my goal, and 2 Corinthians 5, 9 was mentioned 
My goal is to be pleasing to God and not to be accepted uh, by men. So courage would be another aspect of that training and preparation we need to be uh, focused on. Let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 is the uh, foundational, or contains, the foundational New Testament teaching in regard to spiritual warfare for us today. And we learn a number of things from the uh, verses that Paul includes as he wraps up his letter to the Ephesians, beginning with verse 10 of uh, chapter 6. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And, and so again, if we say it once, we'll say it a hundred times this weekend because it's so significant. This isn't the issue of, let me give you 12 easy steps to steal, harden, or prepare yourself to deal with sexual temptation. It's not a 12-step program. It's not a program of, you know, if you would just do these four things. No, it's not what it is. It's a program. It's not even a program, but it's, it's, it's based on a focus of what? It's a focus of God and a focus of Him in your life. So he starts this emphasis on spiritual warfare by saying, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. And, and the reality is that when you don't have strength to take that stand or to, take, to, to, to do that act of courage, it's his strength that's going to be able to give you the grace to do that. And um, he goes on to say in verse 11, put on the full armor of God, not so that you can have success so that you can be the baddest warrior out there or win the ninja game or whatever else, but you put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you may, able, may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Anytime the Bible says something three times in one context, it's of pretty significance. Uh, and that's what we have here. We have stand firm mentioned three times in this context. It would seem like that's the focus Paul's wanting us to get out of here. And he, as he introduces the concept, not only does he first emphasize God, but then he emphasizes the purpose of the armor that he provides for us is so that we can stand firm against the devil. Verse 12 is one of those verses that's, you know, one, as we read through this passage, is frequently overlooked. <clears throat> In fact, actually 10, 11, and 12, frequently when people start talking about um, the armor of God, they start with verse 13. Now you've got to go back and start for what I just mentioned. You start with 10 and 11, but 12 is significant as well. Why? Because it reminds us who the struggle is against. Uh, the, the struggle is not against uh, someone that doesn't like what we're doing. The struggle is not against, no, the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, uh, in the heavenly places. He goes on to say, therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may, able to, may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. There's the second time, in case you missed it the first two times, stand firm, therefore. And so the significance is get up, put on the armor of God and stand. Quit laying down on the battlefield. And he goes on to explain, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. But it doesn't just give us, he doesn't just give us weapons, he gives us effective weapons. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And, and so that discussion we had a little bit this morning is how do we effectively deal with and minister to people who are struggling with, with scripture? Uh, and, 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 and that's the reminder here as well. Um, and uh, with all prayer and petition, verse 18, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition, petition for all the saints. Interesting, we look at this. We start with God, we end with God in prayer here in verse 18. Uh, but wrapping up the paragraph, uh, Paul says, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, so to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, and in proclaiming that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. One of the biggest hindrances, I would argue, to evangelism is today is that we're not praying for each other for boldness. I figure if Paul, who's in prison for sharing the Gospels, one prayer request to the Ephesians is, pray for me for boldness to share the Gospel, maybe we need to do the same. 
Uh, and maybe if we pray for each other in this context more for boldness to be able to share the gospel, if God's men were more about being bold in sharing the gospel, maybe there wouldn't be as much of an opportunity to fall in the temptation of sexual sin because we're focused on the things of God. So if nothing else, walk out of today thinking, I'm going to pray for these guys that I've been talking to this week for boldness, not just for protection, not just for clarity of thoughts and for pure thoughts and, and all those things that you need to be. But I'm going to pray for these men to be bold to share the gospel as they ought to share the gospel. Because it's amazing how when you're sharing the gospel with somebody with boldness, that sexual temptation isn't usually a real problem at that point in time. So praying for boldness is important. But what we see in the midst of this is the armor that God has provided for us, the weapons that God has provided for us, excuse me, in regards to fighting the fight that we're considering this weekend. So once we have that armor on, and I leave you that to, to study and ponder and prayerfully consider that application of the Ephesians passage, you'll have an opportunity to respond to a question about that here a little later in your, in your groups as well. <coughs> Excuse me. But in the midst of that, what does the battle look like? Specifically, as we narrow this down, what does the battle look like? Well, the battle looks like and starts with the mind. And uh, where, where the, the battle with sexual sin is, is most intense is, uh, is in the mind. God wants our mind. He talks about us having the mind of Christ. He talks about in Romans 12 being renewed in the spirit of our mind. God's concerned, again, from the heart perspective with our mind, will, and emotion. He's concerned about our mind. As Dale said yesterday, being tempted is not the sin. It's what we do with it that's the sin. And the enemy tempts us at the level of the mind, at that thought level. In fact, so much so that it's not at all uncommon for people to say to to you or to me or for maybe even you to say, I can't help thinking about fill in the blank. Well, the reality is that you can help thinking about that. Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse five says, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It is possible for us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. But it's interesting. That's not done again, based on some kind of a magic formula. It's done in the context of spiritual warfare, empowered by the weapons empowered by that which God provides to give us the ability to take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And in context, if you back up to verse 3, you see that clearly, for you see, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses or strongholds. And we are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ in the context of spiritual warfare. And as we saw from the Ephesians 6 passage, God gives what we need in the context of that battle that we fight. And we recognize, again, if we add that Romans 12, 1 and 2, that idea of being renewed in the spirit of our mind, it comes together and we recognize that the place where we address and deal with this sin, uh, the temptation in regards to sexual issues is, is in the mind. What thoughts do you entertain? Because that's where it starts. I've counseled a lot of people that have been involved in adulterous relationships and not one of them woke up one day and said, I'm going to go have sex with somebody other than my spouse today. Never happens that way. I can't say it would never happen that way, but I've never encountered it. What happens is it was one step at a time. You know, there was one thought that said, well, it won't be that big of a deal if I stay and work late with only her in the office. And it won't be that big of a deal that she came in and asked me a question and I asked her about how her kids were doing. And it won't be that big of a, it's a progression of what? Of thoughts. Those thoughts lead to actions. And, and, and so if we can get control of that mind, if we can get control of those taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And again, when I'm saying get control of, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, not a formula. It's God gives us the ability to take control of our mind because of the grace that he provides through Christ Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit uh, that uh, resides in us and the power uh, that he gives us. 
and you can just think about this Second Corinthians 10 passage and, and see the, the, the dramatic application to the issue of sexual temptation. Uh, though we walk in the flesh, we don't walk in the flesh. We frequently try to deal with sexual temptation from the world's perspective only. There are practical things that you need to do. Internet filters, that's a good thing. But if the internet filter is the way that you're trying to deal with your sexual temptation and that's it, you're not going to be effective. You're going to be walking in the flesh. You're going to be walking in the world's wisdom. You're going to be trying to, you'll see this in a question for you to discuss in a minute too, is you're going to be trying to manage your sin rather than to put it to death. I, I dealt with a man uh, who had been involved in a lot of uh, addiction recovery programs. He was involved in Celebrate Recovery and a leader, and he was back into pornography again, even as he was a leader in two of these groups. And, and as I was uh, talking with him, I listened to him, and, and, and what happened was that he had all these things in place, all these mon- everything in place to, to, to keep him doing the right thing. And he determined that, in his mind, he determined that if he did a Google image search and didn't collect, connect, uh, click on the image, he'd get by with it and it would bypass the reporting software. So he could look at that thumbnail and be safe. Well, he was wrong. And, and for the first time in his battle, so-called, with, uh, with, with this issue, his wife actually found out that he had been involved in pornography before he knew she was going to find out. Because, see, in the past, he'd always managed things. He'd made a decision that she was going to find out. He's going to go ahead and do it anyway. She was going to find out, and then he would be able to prepare himself for how he would address that. So he would manipulate, and he would work, and he would minimize. And he, but this time, he wasn't prepared because he didn't know it was coming. He was walking in the flesh. He was warring according to the flesh, and it didn't work for him. And in the midst of that, as I'm listening to him, I said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is that you're trying to manage your sin rather than put it to death. And I'm not saying that those things you have in place aren't appropriate and important. They are. But the problem is that's what, and that's what he said something to me that was fascinating. In the context of what we're dealing with, as we think about the mind, as we think about taking thoughts captive, he said, he said, you know what is most significant to me? He said, what used to be most significant to me was the sexualized nature of the pornography. He said, you know what's most significant to me now? Most significant to me now is being able to access it and not get caught. That's where the thrill is for me. And I thought two things. I thought, how tragic, number one. And number two, I thought, I sure appreciate your honesty. Because see, what had happened was he certainly wasn't trying to put the sin to death. Because he was getting a a thrill that was beyond. He'd pretty much seen all that he could see or wanted to see in in, in, in the pornography side. And now it was, can I get by with it? Can I see a little more without getting caught? And by God's grace, God transformed him. And after a period of time, one of the things that was most telling was uh, the, the day after we had had our last session, he texted me and said, well, the enemy came to me today and said, well, you got through that. Now let's get back to business. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. But I thought, isn't that interesting? A picture of what we're dealing with in the context of this arena is an enemy who is very patient and who will allow us to go through all the efforts that we want to go to, but then we'll be waiting almost, and in this case, immediately after saying, okay, now let's get back to business. You've put on the show, you've made people happy. Let's get back to business. We walk according to flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. That's the problem. And uh, in the midst of that, we need to change and recognize that the weapons of our, flat, our, of our warfare are not the flesh, but they're divinely powerful. The, the idea of destruction of fortresses or strongholds, people who struggle with these sexual issues and these temptations, uh, they're going to tell you, and, and, and you can bear witness to this as a struggle in your life, is that, yeah, they are, like, they are like strongholds. They're fortresses. They need to be torn down in the context of the prominence and prevalence that they have in the mind. We are destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. In the midst of those thoughts, there's frequently a, well, I wonder if this woman would, or if this would, or if this, that, that those speculative thoughts, we're destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Once you look at one more thing, and then I'll mention just a few uh, <clears throat> 
practical ways, and you can discuss some more of these. But look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. So far this morning, we've looked at the significance and importance of, uh, of having the right attitude and the right training mindset in regards to dealing with sexual sin, to, to look at that training of uh, taking this as serious in the context of warfare, to look at training even as we might train soldiers uh, in regards to the preparation for dealing with these issues. We, we've also looked at and considered the, the perspective of the mind because that's where uh, this battle rages most significantly. But in regards to the, the behavior and even the mind as well, we need to recognize that the Bible is not a book of don'ts. The Bible is not a don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. It's not a book of restrictions. It's a, it's a book of recognizing the fact that we need to, even as we quit doing something, we need to do something else. But it also recognizes the significance and importance of no matter how much we in our flesh try to quit doing something and start doing something else, it's not going to be effective. And so we see in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, there are many other examples of this, but to me one of the, the, the most concise evidences or presentations, excuse me, of the biblical process of change in verses uh, 22 through 24. Because the biblical process of change is not stop it or don't. The biblical process of change is put off, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on. And we see that clearly here in these verses, verse 22. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside your old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the seat of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness uh, and holiness uh, of the truth. And so as you come to uh, uh, consideration today of your life, because you're, you may be in a situation where what we've talked about, your struggle may be at that thought level. You may already be doing a lot of what we talked about. Be affirmed and encouraged in that. You may be struggling at that thought level and, and you may not be taking those thoughts captive. You may not be addressing them the way that we've talked about. You may not be having that, that, uh, that warrior mindset. And so the challenge to you is begin addressing and dealing with that now. But some of you, it may have proceeded far beyond the thought level. And in that context, as you deal with behavior, not only do you certainly need to acknowledge and change that, but you need to recognize that the process of change is a process of change that includes the power of God to bring about that change, that put off, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on. And so we, we provide a, a basis for what that looks like. And obviously that looks like if you're involved in, in uh, accessing uh, pornography, you need to, to put that off. Uh, you need to recognize that God is going to be the one in regards to that renewal of your mind that's going to uh, to, to bring about a change of mind, a change of purpose, and a change of focus, as well as the power to be able to address uh, and deal with that putting off. And what do you put on instead? Put on the things of God, whatever those may be. It may be scripture, maybe prayer, maybe talking to someone else. Uh, it's going to be an ongoing process, an ongoing battle. Sometimes that process of putting off, putting on, or taking thoughts captive uh, can, be, uh, uh, can be very long term. I had a, uh, uh, in another context, had a student that came to me. She had been diagnosed when she was 15 years old with obsessive compulsive disorder. She was 27 when she came to seminary. Her uh, obsession was that she had committed the unpardonable sin. And so one of the first things we did is we looked at scripture to replace and confront the lie that she had come to believe with the truth of scripture. And while she knew she was familiar with those things, but to, to, to put it in the context of, no, it's not just what you think. And that has some kind of equal value with what script, the truth versus lie. We began dealing with that. And I began to teach her the significance of what we've been looking at this morning of taking thoughts captive of, of putting off and, and being renewed in the spirit of your mind and, and putting on one of the great things about counseling somebody who has 
obsessive-compulsive tendencies is they're great at memorizing scripture. She memorized more scripture than anyone I've ever counseled. Uh, it was great. Um, and, uh, and, and in her life, because it wasn't just the task, because God was empowering that, uh, the way she had been wired, she was able to effectively use that scripture. But she, she came to me after a period of time, and she said to me, um, Am I, it seems like all I do every day is take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And I looked at her and said, is that any worse than what you were doing before? And she said, well, no, I guess I hadn't thought about it that way. And so the second question was, is it ever going to stop? And I said, I can't tell you from scripture that you're going to have to, that the temptations, the thoughts are going to cease. I can tell you based on my experiences, I think they will over time. But the bottom line is, if it's the right thing to do, it's, it's what you do. If taking thoughts captive and addressing them and dealing with that's what God calls you to do. He empowers you, gives you the grace to do it. That's what you keep doing. And in her life, over a period of time, they did lessen. Um, and uh, uh, she's uh, been out and in ministry uh, uh, for 15 years now and uh, is doing quite well. But realize that as you begin to address the issues that you're struggling with using what we're teaching from Scripture and, and accessing God's grace to be able to deal with it, realize that it may not be a quick fix. Uh, you may be taking thoughts captive a whole lot for a long period of time. But it's not any worse than where you're at today uh, or where you were at last week. So keep that in mind. I want to draw your attention. Jonathan mentioned this. I'm going to uh, briefly just uh, share with you the... Uh, chapter uh, 3 in Heath Lambert's book, uh, he mentions using accountability to fight pornography. Uh, he talks about the importance of accountability on page 46. Uh, and then uh, he goes through and emphasizes uh, some things that are important about accountability. And the first point he makes is that effective accountability doesn't rely exclusively on accountability. Um, and, and I think that's very important to consider. Uh, and, and, and to think about uh, because accountability doesn't make you holy. Uh, it, can't just, uh, it just can't depend on accountability itself. There are other resources, uh, weapons that God provides, uh, restrictions that you may need to implement in your life. Um, <clears throat> there are many other things that need to go on. You can't just go through life and say, well, I've got an accountability partner, so everything's going to be fine. Um, the second thing is effective accountability on page 48 is involved early rather than late. The longer you are in the midst of an ongoing life-dominating sin, the harder it is to get out of it. And so some of you, as you have begun last night maybe, for the first time talking about some of your struggles, uh, that accountability starting early rather than late uh, is, uh, is very important. In the midst of this, he... Uh, uh, he, he, he plays out a, a, a discussion between Steve and Ben and Nathan um, as they are, are talking about their sin. And they begin apologetically, Steve, that second paragraph, uh, anticipating the question, he confesses apology, apologetically. I'm like Ben this week. I feel terrible. But I actually looked at pornography four times this week. Guys, I'm no better than you. I had a pretty good week. But last night I gave in and looked at pornography for almost an hour. Page 49, first paragraph, he says, What's wrong with this meeting? Sadly, this well-intentioned conversation illustrates several defective approaches to accountability. One of these defective approaches is these guys are only reporting on the sin they have already committed rather than asking for help to battle the temptations that precede sin. In other words, they're waiting until the end of the week to talk about all the pornography they looked at instead of calling out for help during the week while they are tempted and before they actually sin. Um, and so the reality is that once the, once the gate's open and you've let the cows out, it's a whole lot harder to get them back than it is to close the gate before they ever get out. Um, step three, he mentions effective accountability involves someone with maturity. One of my biggest concerns in some of that, that illustration that, uh, that I just uh, read a little bit about, one of my biggest concerns with accountability is that when you have men that are holding you accountable, it's somewhat difficult because all of us have some level of understanding for one's sexual temptations. Um, we, we understand that. And so it's very easy for an accountability group to kind of fall into this, well, I understand that affirmation, that encouragement, 
as opposed to the idea of, no, really the focus has to be putting sin to death. We need to talk about this on Monday rather than Friday. We need to address this beforehand. And so when I counsel couples who are dealing with, uh, with, with um, uh, pornography and sexual issues, um, unless I see a very immature um, or, or a non-Christian wife, uh, I will present the idea of the fact that your spouse needs to be your primary accountability partner. And one of the reasons your spouse needs to be your primary accountability partner, I mentioned this last night, is because of the fact she's just not going to be real understanding. You know? And the bottom line is, when us guys get together, sometimes we can be a little too understanding. Because there but by the grace of God go I. And so as you do accountability, recognize both sides of that one. Uh, you need to have somebody with maturity that's willing to say, you know, as Dale did, I'm not above this, but nevertheless, you can't do that. Uh, we've got to figure out this isn't working as opposed to week after week of, well, I did, but I'm a little better than last week. And well, I did too, as opposed to week after no, wait, we've got to stop and we've got to do something different because this isn't working. We need to involve a pastor. We need to involve, we need to figure out something to do because this isn't working. So somebody with some maturity and an ability and a desire to put this to death with you has become very important. Uh, effective accountability involves someone with authority uh, is four. Uh, and then five was mentioned uh, uh, last night uh, as well, and I, I appreciated uh, the way it was uh, presented using uh, uh, the, the illustration of how Scripture presents uh, David's sin with Bathsheba. Uh, five is effective accountability should avoid explicit details. There needs to be enough there that you're not hiding something, uh, but, uh, but that's about it. There's a big difference between um, I struggle with pornography and someone who looked at pornography once uh, accidentally uh, when it popped up on a pop-up on their screen versus somebody who's looking at pornography an hour to two hours a day. And uh, there needs to be a clear understanding of what that looks like. Uh, while it's significant sin and would have to be addressed, someone who had one adulterous encounter with one person is different than someone who's been having an ongoing adulterous relationship with somebody for years. Uh, so there needs to be enough details so that, and we'll talk a little bit about confessing uh, this afternoon, there needs to be enough details that person uh, understands what you're truly confessing. Uh, there needs to be enough humility to not be hiding uh, what you've done, but there also needs to not be the self-centeredness that says, hey, look at what all I've done. We don't need the details. And one of the things I found in counseling, um, and again, uh, pastors and leaders, but also for those of you that are dealing with this, is sometimes wives want the details, and I have to say, no, 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 you really don't want the details. Um, and, uh, and, and that's not uh, appropriate. And then six, the thing he mentions, and I'll, I'll just uh, commend this chapter for your consideration, is effective accountability places the responsibility for confession on the person with the problem. It, it's appropriate and important to ask questions but the bottom line is an accountability group shouldn't look like this. I have to craft the best, most uh, detective-focused, piercing questions I possibly can to peel out your sin from under the rock that you're hiding it. No, accountability means I need to come and sit down and say, hey, here's what's going on in my life. Uh, accountability starts with the person who's sinning, not the person who's holding uh, them accountable. So accountability is important. Uh, guardrails are important. Put up guardrails. Um, I, I, I like the idea of guardrails. I think it's a good picture. Um, when I'm driving in the mountains of Colorado, going skiing, I like the guardrails. They're my friends. I look over the side of that cliff and hope I don't uh, need that guardrail, but I'm glad it's there. And uh, we need guardrails in our life. And for those of you that may be struggling with some significant ongoing issues, those guardrails may need to be really high. And for others, they may not need to be quite as high. Uh, but uh, from that perspective of putting sin to death, um, you know, that, that may involve some, uh, some, some pretty dramatic life-changing decisions, uh, especially in regards to technology. Uh, and I'm not going to go into details about that now. Uh, again, what I've seen is, as you all work together, uh, there's enough leadership and enough maturity and focus here that uh, there are going to be people that can walk through that with you. You need to have a humility, though, if you're the one struggling with that, that says, okay, I will what? Go back to that training of a soldier. I will submit to that. I will honor that authority. And I will go back to uh, a focus on 
doing what God wants me to do rather than what I want to do. So having those uh, guardrails important uh, in, in, uh, up are important. And then finally, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, Dale mentioned this uh, last night uh, as well, but I want to go ahead and look at it uh, with the verses before and after as we think about practical ways uh, to deal with uh, this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with uh, verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So not only are we told to flee sexual immorality, which is the, the, the most effective um, practical counsel I can give you, or that the Word gives us, but as we look at that passage in context, it doesn't just tie it to, 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 to one thing. It ties it what? It ties it to God. It ties us to the significance of His holiness, who He is, and how our sexual sin impacts ourselves, as verse 18 mentions. Uh, the immoral sin, uh, the immoral man sins against his own body, but also the impact of, of, of it on God and uh, the fact that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit and we've been bought with a, a price. Therefore, what? Therefore, glorify God uh, in your body. Well, I would apologize for going too long, but I'm not going to because I think that's what God wanted me to share with you this morning, and I'll turn it over to you.